like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday, the 28th of June, and it is 7am. My name is Fung, and in the studio with me is Jasmine. Good morning, Jasmine. Morning, Fung. How are you going? I'm well, thank you. How are you going with this like frosty <laughs> weather. It's so frosty and every time I'm in the car it's just the whole car's fogging up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I feel like it's I'm just like in some sort of post apocalyptic movie, especially coming into the studio in the mornings where the roads are dead and it's all foggy. Oh it's, it's so fog- eerie, isn't yes. it? Driving down Brunswick Street, there's no one around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it is kind of nice that there's no traffic but at the same time it is Pretty, so spooky. <laughs> pretty spooky, yeah. Um, well, it's just the two of us this morning. Mm. Um, do you want to tell us what's coming up on the show today? Yeah, yeah. So in light of recent events, we're revisiting an earlier interview with Dr. Dr. Tanya Penevik on the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade in the US and here in Australia. We'll also hear from Erica Miller about Australia's abortion policies and the domestic implications of overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, we are also going to be hearing from Emilia Quiano um, to discuss the recent presidential election results in Colombia. Yeah, so we are going to be focusing a bit on um, abortion policies, safer access to abortions, given everything that's going on in the US at the moment. But yeah, it'll be really exciting to hear about um, what's happening in Colombia as well. Mm. Um, Okay, well, we will be right back with the news headlines after this. CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, Tuesday the 28th of June. On Friday the 24th of June, the US Supreme Court officially reversed Roe v. Wade on Friday, declaring that the constitutional right to abortion upheld for nearly a half century no longer exists. The decision, most of which was already leaked in early May, means that abortion rights will be rolled back in nearly half of the states immediately, with more restrictions likely to follow. 
26 states are expected to do so as soon as possible. Um, this will make abortion illegal across most of the South and Midwest. In these states, people who uh, can become pregnant will need to either travel hundreds of miles to reach an abortion provider or self-manage abortions at home through medication or other means. However, anti-abortion laws are not national. The U.S. will have... Um, sort of like a patchwork of laws, including restrictions and protections, because some of the Democratic-led states, such as California and New York, have expanded or did expand reproductive rights in the run-up to the decision. Uh, stay tuned, because we'll be hearing more about this with some of our interviews later on. Francia Marquez, a single mother and former housekeeper, will be Colombia's first black woman vice president after an historic vote on Sunday saw the country pick its first leftist president, Gustavo Petro. Uh, Marquez and Petro won 50.4% of the vote in Sunday's election. In front of the background emblazoned with the phrase, change is unstoppable, Marquez thanked supporters from across Colombia for assisting her and Petro's campaign in a speech broadcast from Bogota. She said, After 214 years, we have achieved a government of the people, a popular government, a government of people with calloused hands, the government of the nobodies of Colombia, she said. Uh, Francia Marquez hails from the municipality of Suarez, a rural area of Colombia's um, Coca province. Around 80% of the population live in some sort of poverty. Marquez is also a celebrated environmental activist whose opposition to gold mining in her home municipality saw her receive the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize in 2018. Um, but as well as that, she did receive death threats as, as part of her um, activism. As well as serving as Petro's vice president, Marquez is slated to lead a new um, equality ministry to build on her core ideas of improving women's rights and helping the poor access health and education. And we'll be hearing more about this when we speak to Emilia Cuyano later this morning. Now to news in India. Um, Indian human rights defender Tista Setalvad has been arrested on Sunday in Gujarat's largest city, Ahmedabad. The police have accused her of committing forgery and fabricating evidence, among other charges. Tista has long campaigned to get justice for victims of the 2002 religious violence in the anti-Muslim riots in Gujarat. And this has come after India's Supreme Court upheld the findings of a special investigation team that cleared um, Prime Minister Modi of complicity in 2002 anti-Muslim riots. Sitalvad said, according to a complaint shared by her aide with Al Jazeera, that her detention was illegal and that the police assaulted her during the raid. Um, Kavita Krishnan, who is a prominent civil liberties activist, termed the arrest a revenge action by the Modi government, accusing the court of paving the way for the case against Setalvad and two other officers. She said the action will have a chilling effect on the civil society in the country already facing pressure. Um, And this is a quote, this regime is suppressing civil society that acts as a watchdog on the state. Now to news uh, back home. An advocacy group for Australian Muslims has lodged a complaint against Twitter with the Queensland Human Rights Commission, accusing the site of failing to take action against accounts that incite hatred on the platform. The Australian Muslim Advocacy Network argues that as a publisher, Twitter is responsible for content posted by far-right accounts that um, have incited in the manifesto of the extremist who killed 77 people in Norway in 2011. 
The network says that despite multiple requests, Twitter has refused to delete the account and replies to, it, to its posts that vilify Muslims. The network has accused Twitter under Queensland's Anti-Discrimination Act of inciting hatred as a publisher of third-party accounts, as well as discrimination for refusing to take action against hateful content. Its complaint also says that Twitter has engaged in indirect discrimination by failing to apply Australian standards to content on its platform. Uh, the network says that it engaged with Twitter between 2020, July 2020 to uh, July 2021. They had asked the platform to remove several accounts that were inciting hatred, but Twitter refused to act, saying that the accounts were assessed um, to be consistent with their policies. Um, so, yeah, watch this space, but the network does want Twitter to immediately remove accounts that serially tweet material that incite hatred against Muslim communities. Uh, finally, an Australian-wide analysis of the gender pay gap by the federal government's Workplace Gender Equality Agency paints a very bleak picture of the state uh, of gender equality in the private sector, publishing new data that shows women are still earning consistently less than men in every age bracket. The report called Wages and Ages, Mapping the Gender Pay Gap by age shows the pay gap widened substantially when women turn 35, with women earning $7.78 for every $10 earned by their men counterparts. And this disparity just worsens over the next 20 years with a slight improvement once women turn um, 65, but never actually reaching parity. Um, there's a combination of factors driving the pay disparity. Uh, according to the agency's director, Mary Woolridge, many low-paying jobs in the care and education sectors are dominated by women, um, but the dr bigger drivers actually are discrimination and the fact that women spend more time outside the workforce to care for children and family. Um, and you may have heard some of these points um, brought up by Will Strach um, last week speaking with Jasmine. Um, uh, Woolridge said that while some women choose to cut down their work hours because it suits them, most of them feel that they actually have no alternative. Um, she says, in many instances, it's not a genuine choice. They're constrained because an organisation may not be prepared for them to work part-time and return to the workforce, or they may not be able to access childcare and can't exercise the choice to um, return to work. Um, we are going to continue the conversation about... Um, the effects that um, uh, the child, uh, child care and, and um, early childhood education package will have on women and workers here on 3CR, so make sure that you um, stay tuned for that. Um, we are going to be back with an interview right after this break. Um, keep it locked to 3CR. Three CR Radiothon 2022. Three CR keep community strong. Three CR Radiothon fundraiser June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3CR.org.au. Three CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong. Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy Nadoc Week, everybody. 
I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday the 9th of July. A radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Bowling. It's a walk down Curry Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie, Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fire Show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Cause it's getting closer and closer to its end. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prison. Beyond the Bars started in 2002, and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NAIDOC, from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash Beyond the Bars. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. In light of recent news in the US, we would like to revisit one of Carnegie's conversations with Dr. Tanya Penevik, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Law, Deputy Associate Dean, and the Research Program Group Leader in Gender and Sexuality for the Kasten Centre for Human Rights, Human Rights Law, rather. Dr. Penevik spoke with Carnegie on about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade in the US and here in Australia. This interview originally aired on May 10, 2022. Dr. Tanya Penevik is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law, Deputy Associate Dean International, and the Research Program Group Leader in Gender and Sexuality for the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law. Dr. Penovic teaches litigation and dispute resolution, torts in a number of areas of international and domestic human rights law, including women's rights. Tanya is on this show this morning to talk to us about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade in the U.S. and here in Australia. Welcome to the show, Tanya. It's great to be here, Carnegie. So can we start off by just giving our listeners a little bit of a background on what Roe versus Wade is? Sure. It's a decision that the Supreme Court of the United States handed down in 1973 and it basically found that the right to decide whether or not to have an abortion was constitutionally protected under the right to privacy. So, so what this meant was that states could not impose outright bans on abortion because that would be unconstitutional. Some restrictions were permissible and it basically took a trimester framework. So in the first 
trimester of a pregnancy, um, abortion should not be restricted. In the second trimester, um, restrictions could be tailored largely around um, the health and safety of the mother. And in the third trimester, um, more restrictions could be imposed, particularly around that point of viability, so when the fetus is capable of life outside the womb, which was around 24 weeks. Yeah. So, so the, overturn, the, the likely overturning, and, and it hasn't happened yet, mm. we, you know, we just had a leaked draft uh, majority opinion, um, which looks like it's unlikely to change. And, in fact, the leaking renders that, you know, more so, I believe. So it's, it's just a draft opinion at this stage. Now, now it, when this, when and if this becomes the majority decision, then states will be free to ban abortion and more than half of the states of the United States are poised to do so. Yeah, it's a terrifying prospect. Um, what is. Does religion play a role in this? Absolutely, absolutely. This, this, is, this is inextricably tied with the rise uh, the, the, the political rise of the evangelical. So, so the Catholic Church has always been opposed to abortion, but it was really the 1970s, 1980s that the evangelical um, movement, which, which comprises a large percentage, it's, I, I believe, around a quarter of the US population, um, this was a group that was not very politically active up until the late 1970s. They, they seemed to sort of shun politics as a bit of a dirty business, but that all changed. And really, abortion was the galvanising issue. So um, the, the growing politicisation of the evangelical movement is such that really since Reagan, every Republican presidential candidate, including Trump, really declared their opposition to abortion. And then this was, this was the price to be paid for support from the evangelicals. So, you know, even, even if you know they don't really mean it. And <laughs> I actually think that none of them have really meant it, you know, from Reagan to, to the two Bushes to, to Trump. None of them have meant it, but it's been, it's been, um, a condition of a lot of political support. Now, Trump, um, got to install three judges on the Supreme Court and uh, these judges have um, been the decisive, well, are likely to be the decisive factor. I mean, you know, obviously um, we don't know um, for sure who would be concurring with Alito who wrote the majority judgment, but, you know, we have a fair idea. <laughs> it includes the three that, that Trump got to a point. So it's all inextricably tied with the rise of the Christian right. And, and this is something that I think we, we are very, um, complacent about here. But there's, there's definitely been a rise of the Christian right in Australia too. And, and I think that this is something that we should be very, very aware of. Um, it is, it is very dangerous for the rights of women, um, and the rights of other vulnerable groups, so LGBTIQ plus people, um, people with a disability. It's of great concern. I think it really needs to be interrogated 
uh, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the kind of um, far-right religious movement isn't as big here, and it's not used quite as much in political kind of t- to kind of polarize um, different sides of politics as much here in Australia. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. You can't be complacent because there have been instances of examples where people are emulating that kind of thing here. Um, you know, can you talk to us a bit more about how there's been examples of, you know, us emulating American kind of activism in these far right spaces? Sure, sure. And, and, you know, it's interesting to know the growing link between, um, the, the Christian right, the, the anti-abortion movement and, you know, also the, the far right in the United States, the other elements of the far right, which is fairly frightening and, and something that's just emerging. But in Australia, something I've done a lot of research on is, um, anti-abortion picketing of um, abortion clinics. Now, throughout Australia now, we have laws that that keep these picketers at a distance from clinics. We know that, that there's a history of decades of targeted harassment of people entering and leaving clinics, and um, about 15 years ago, we had a, a murder at, um, at East Melbourne's fertility control clinic. Um, that was perpetrated by a man who had stood outside the clinic previously with anti-abortion groups. I mean, they all they all um, distanced themselves from him <laughs> um, after what happened, but he had stood and and you know uh, sort of protested, if you like, with them. Now these these um, picketers, and I won't call them protesters. They would stand outside clinics. They would they would abuse people, shout at them, stop them from entering the building, stop them from exiting cars, chase them down down the road, um, hurl abuse at them. And these this conduct was very much modelled on conduct that occurred in the US. So a lot of these picketers belong to a group um, known as Helpers of God's Precious Infants which was set up in Brooklyn um, by a Catholic priest. And this Catholic priest visited Australia. He, he exported his methodologies <laughs> to Australia. And the, the rise of the Christian right has seen um, not just the influence online, um, which obviously is easy now, but visits from these people to um, share their ideas and methodologies with um, activists in Australia. So that that's one thing. But even in the um, even in the the legislative and policy space, um, South Australia is the last uh, Australian state to decriminalise abortion. It's it's legislation has still not come into effect. It hasn't commenced, but. In the context of the, the passage of that legislation, um, some parliamentarians invited an American anti-abortion activist to advise them uh, in Parliament, mm. in South Australian Parliament. We know too that that at the um, the recent uh, Queensland election, the um, LNP promised that if it won power, it would review the decriminalisation of abortion. By the Labor by the Labor government, and in fact, One Nation, which of course originates in Queensland, um, has a greater power base in Queensland, 
ran on a um, an anti-choice platform. So it's a very much an American influenced American style. We will ban abortion. You know, we mm. we have a pro-life and in inverted commas uh, platform. So you can see examples of this politicisation. And of course, we have um, we have a government that tried to enact a religious freedoms law and is committed if it wins the election later this month to um, once again have a go at it. Now, now that is a very, very concerning law. That That's a law that, that really um, is pandering to the religious right, in my view. Um, you know, it, the impetus for that was um, same-sex marriage, which was seen as so outrageous for the Christian right that, that they needed they needed a consolation prize and that was to be this religious freedoms law that is a hateful and nasty law that no one needs and will just entrench discrimination and nastiness against vulnerable people and you know particularly people with disability LGBTIQ plus people and women seeking health care services so it's um it's 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 a real worry, and of course we have we have our first evangelical prime minister mm. um, in Scott Morrison, and you know that that influence is not to be sneezed at. It, it's all extremely concerning, and I am committed to continuing to interrogate it um, in order to to not drop the ball and and. Um, sort of complacently think that we are not like the US. I mean, the US, like it or not, is extremely influential over, you know, Australians and the rest of the world, in fact. So we need to watch very carefully what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. And there are pretty terrifying example of how you can push sort of a stigmatized narrative over a sustained long period of time and that slowly kind of leads to the erosion of rights and you're not always 100% aware as it's happening? Well that's right I mean it's been 49 years in the making this judgment and it's, it's taken a concerted effort for five decades um, of these Christian rights anti-abortion groups, and I might say a lot of money. There's a lot of money um, that, you know, sort of available to these groups and a lot of money has been poured into lobbying in the United States, but also these groups have, you know, lobbied elsewhere around the world, um, most actively in Europe. Um, and, you know, you may, you may say, well, I think Europe, you know, Europe generally has liberalised laws and abortion laws are fairly liberal in most of Europe, but there are exceptions, and notably Poland. Um, Poland has regressed, and US, the US Christian right has been very active in Poland in facilitating that development. Wow. Um, yeah, I think that's also um, something that we should all be constantly aware of, not just the America's influence here, but globally um what can people do to kind of just keep abreast of this and make sure that they are um catching you know what's going on and yeah it's, it doesn't take us by surprise one day well i think i think um you need to inform yourselves i think you need to communicate with your political representatives i think you need to 
um, let them know what your views are. And you need to, to vote at the election and all elections for candidates that reflect um, your values. And, you know, sometimes assumptions are made um, and those assumptions are wrong. So knowledge is power, and I would say inform yourself. And, and don't be complacent, never be complacent, because these rights are hard-fought and easily lost. But, but you know, the, the, the one thing I would say, too, is think about Australia. When we think about Australia and religion, we think about ourselves as a secular nation, um, mm. and increasingly so. And, you know, we know that most Australians are in favour of reproductive rights because polling has shown us the case. But um, the United States of America is another example of where the majority of the population um, support reproductive rights. So it's about 70% of the US population that believes that Roe should not be overturned. And yet you can have a political landscape where um, the, the consequence is quite different um, because of your elected representatives because of the politicisation of the judiciary. And I think it's something that, that we need to be aware of. I mean, this, this is a, a fundamental human rights issue. It's about the right to health. It's about the right to equality, gender equality. It's about freedom from cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. There was an article yesterday by Margaret Atwood, um, author of The Handmaid's Tale, among other things, where she described... Um, forced childbirth as a form of slavery very compellingly. So I think, I think we need to inform ourselves so that, that we know what the situation is. And of course, that's not easy within our <laughs> media landscape, but, but I think people do, do very well to be listening to your program. Absolutely. Um, that's unfortunately all we have time for today, but I would like to definitely uh, encourage our listeners to stay cautious and, um, you know, stay informed and vote. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Tanya, and talking us through this really important issue. It's a pleasure, Carnegie. Um, all the best. It's been lovely talking to you. You too. That was Dr. Tanya Penovic uh, from the Human Rights um, Caston Law Centre talking to us about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade. Next up, we have a song for you. This is Aretha Franklin's Respect from Aretha's 1967 album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You.
Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm So you just heard Respect by Aretha Franklin. Now, next up, we have Dr. Erica Miller, a Senior Research Fellow in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe, who spoke with Jen on May 10th about Australia's abortion policies and the domestic implications of overturning Roe versus Wade. We are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Erica Miller, who is a Senior Research Fellow in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe. Erica's current research focuses on the cultural and social contexts of abortion provision, and she has also written a book in 2017 titled Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice, which examines how anti-abortion messages are infused into common ways of talking about abortion. Erica is on the show to extend our conversation from this morning about the alarming position of the U.S. Supreme Court to potentially overturn Roe versus Wade and give some domestic context to the discussion, because as we know, Australia's abortion policies are not as legally easy as you might think. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. It's a pleasure, Genevieve. Thanks so much for having me on. No, of course. Um, all right. So I wanted to you know, just mentioned to our audience, your recent research has been focused on abortion provision and, you know, obviously very topical in the news right now, considering the Roe v. Wade proposed overturn in the US, which um, our earlier guests spoke about uh, quite extensively. And it would be great if you could quickly discuss what kind of discussions you are seeing pop up right now in the way of this. And considering you have spent so much time researching Um, abortion. Has anything surprised you about the discussion happening now? 
Oh, right. Unfortunately, <laughs> nothing surprised me. Yeah. Uh, people who um, know a little bit about abortion had been expecting uh, Roe versus Wade to be overturned this year, so mm-hmm. it doesn't come as any surprise, unfortunately. Of course, the leaked decision is a surprise because that's almost unprecedented. So we hadn't expected to hear so early in the year. Um, but it's shocking nevertheless. You kind of expect it, but then when you get the decision, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing really surprised me. Um, I think, you know, I haven't actually... I've just had a crazy couple of weeks so I haven't actually even read the leaked um, decision yet. Um, but I think the language of that was particularly conservative. Um, but people who um, who I speak to who know a lot about the US context, um, they say that, you know, it's very predictable language, that this is the language of the anti-abortion movement have been using in the US for 30 years. Um, I guess from, um, from my kind of research perspective, something that's, Interests me, but it's not surprising, is um, on Twitter there's been a lot of people talking about their abortions. Um, it's, we often see, um, you know, in response to these major events. Um, and you mentioned my book, Genevieve, um, and when I was researching for my book, which is really almost in the early 2000s now because it was my PhD, um, there was this really pervasive narrative of abortion of being, you know, very emotionally challenging and difficult. And it was like, it, the, the sort of narrative went that, it's the most difficult thing you're ever going to have to do and you're going to be emotionally scarred forever. Mm. Um, and while we still see that narrative and, you know, politicians love it, <laughs> love to say yeah. how difficult abortion is, um, you see people on Twitter now when they talk about their abortions really speaking against this narrative and saying how, you know, um, how great a decision it was for them and how they felt relief um, and how, you know, abortion was the best thing that ever happened to them. And, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying both these narratives here. Yeah. And, of course, you know, and I'm also simplifying the experience of abortion because everyone has, has an abortion has a different experience and some people experience it as difficult and some people experience it as easy. Um, but I think that, you know, dominant narrative of abortion has shifted over the last 10 years towards this, you know, difficult to this more unapologetic um that so I guess that's interesting to me um, given my work but you know all the conservative discourse around abortion it doesn't surprise me it's disappointing yeah um, yeah but on that just one thing I'll say is that Australia is a very different context to the US it ha- always has been in regards to abortion um, I think we um, sometimes think of Australia as the 51st American state but actually yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to abortion we've always been very different as has places like um, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, um, America is the exception. And all other countries in sort of the Anglophone West are moving in the other direction, and that's towards the criminalisation and liberalisation of abortion. So that's good to bear in mind when thinking about the US context. Definitely. And I definitely yeah. want to get into um, a little bit about what you touched on in your book um, in, I guess, the modern, I guess, to do with what's now a little bit later in the conversation, but just going off, um, you know, Australia and abortions here and, you know, Australia has also had a turbulent view on abortions, obviously not to the same extreme as the US, uh, but not that many people are aware of our policies on the matter. And um, as you mentioned in an article in the conversation recently, even though it is no longer a crime in all states to get an abortion, there are many legal hurdles for women that women still need to jump over. Um, Would you explain what kind of legalities still remain obstacles for women in Australia to access abortions? Well, when we think of obstacles um, to abortion especially, we often think about legal obstacles. Um, So I'll go through them um, quickly, some of the major ones anyway. Um, And so 
one of the major ones actually is in um, South Australia, and the South, South Australian Parliament decriminalised abortion more than a year ago. Um, it passed um, the both houses of Parliament on I don't know the exact date, but it was early March um, 2021, and um, and but. The law hasn't been endorsed yet by Parliament, so in South Australia we're still uh, working under criminalising legislation, um, which, you know, does there is a criminal penalty attached to both doctors and people who have abortions. Um, no one's going to be charged, you know, and um, it, but still the law, the old law remains. Um, and so this, the, the, that's moving really slowly because the regulations that come alongside um, new law haven't been endorsed by Parliament, and so they're really dragging their feet on that. Um, in WA... It's probably got the most um, conservative law um, in Australia now. And uh, this is potentially because they decriminalised first, and that was in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in WA, um, doctors are still subject to criminal penalties if they don't follow health regulations relating to abortion. And the biggest one in WA is... Um, related to abortions after 20 weeks, which are very restricted in WA. Um, then we have clauses in state laws, such as New South Wales, W and South Australia, that, may, that make doctors um, tell pregnant people that counselling services mm-hmm. are available to them if they so need it. And you might think this is kind of, you know, good law, that it's looking after people who want an abortion, um, but if you contrast that with pregnancy, if you go to a doctor and say, you know, I'm pregnant and I want to continue with this pregnancy and, you know, become a parent, they're not going to send you to counselling. And so there's a value yeah. judgment in that law. Um, so there's some of the restrictions in law. But when we're talking about abortion um, hazards practice today, the biggest hurdles are really outside of the law. And so, for example, in most of Australia, abortions are performed in private clinics. Then there's no public provision of abortion. Mm-hmm. And an abortion will cost about four to $600 out of pocket. So that's quite expensive for some women. And we also know that people who have abortions are often, not always, those who are already sort of economically marginalised. So it's particularly... If, um, difficult for people who are having abortions, who are sometimes having abortions because they can't afford to have a child, for example. Yeah, definitely. And I think you made such an interesting point about, you know, when a woman is pregnant, uh, you're kind of not offered um, uh, psychology or therapy in any way. And by doing that with abortion, it kind of denormalizes it even with that. Yeah. That's right. There's this default that um, continuing of the pregnancy, birth and parenthood is a normal pregnancy and that really infuses everything about abortion. Um, it's regulation in law but also in other health policy. It's regulation through Medicare and, you know, what type of um, pregnancy expenses are covered by Medicare. And so, for example, you can have a child, as you should be able to do, fully through the public health system and, you know, having a child through the public health system is a lot more expensive than having a termination. Um, but also the way we speak about abortion, there's this default norm of birth um, and parenthood. And so, for example, even miscarriage is um, there's kind of stigmatised as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just on that note, 
Uh, if you could, I guess, divulge on what systems can Australia specifically implement to improve safer access to abortions? Um, well, the biggest change would probably be to integrate it into public health. And so you might remember in the lead up to the last election, which was, I think, 2018. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there was a Labor health policy which said that they would tie the funding of public hospitals to the provision of abortions. So basically, they say, we're not going to give you your money unless you start providing abortions. And the radical thing about that is that would compel public hospitals to, sorry, to provide abortions. And this would be in um, rural hospitals as well, which is particularly important because when it comes to surgical abortions, there's very few facilities in rural and regional Australia. Another thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a shift away from surgical abortions to medical abortions. Um, and so you, you might know that it's now possible, it's been possible in Australia for a long time, to get an abortion by taking um, two pills, mm-hmm. Um, a day apart. And if you go for medical abortion, you can actually have a medical abortion at home and it sort of induces a miscarriage. And this is only available for people who are pregnant up to nine weeks. So it's called early medical abortion. Um, and it actually, the World Health Organization, other, other institutions say that you can use it safely to 12 weeks. Um, and so that would be another shift to be able to use it later. But currently we can only use it to, in Australia until nine weeks. Um, anyway, so in order for this to happen, uh, there needs to be a huge shift. Um, one of them is there needs to be a Medicare item provided um, for medical abortion. So currently, if you go to a GP um, and ask for a medical abortion, um, a few things will happen. Firstly, your GP most likely won't provide medical abortion. Um, and this is because only 10% of GPs in Australia, 1% in rural and regional Australia... Um, are registered to prescribe medical abortion. Um, and this is because of the TGA, which compels uh, doctors to register to prescribe medical abortion. And this is the only medication that doctors need to specially sign up to prescribe. And doctors just haven't done the course that um, enables them to become abortion providers. So the TGA needs to scrap that regulation. It's unnecessary and it's discriminatory. Um, but then when you get to the doctor... Um, doctors need GPs work or they survive um, by billing patients and they bill patients according to Medicare items. All doctors do, in fact. Um, but with GPs, you've got several items. You have a standard consult, you've got a long consult, and then you've got several medical items for kind of special um, procedures or consults. And so one of these would be a mental health plan. Mm-hmm. Sorry, mental health care plan. So if you've been to a GP and had a mental mental health care plan, you'll know, well, that you spend a lot of time with a doctor and the doctor can bill Medicare for that time. And there's no equivalent for medical abortion, which would take about the same amount of time. And all doctors could do is um, bill for the long consult and that doesn't really remunerate them for the time spent. And the problem with that then is that doctors aren't incentivised to become abortion providers. Um, so there's two simple shifts that can happen and actually need to happen and they will happen in the future, I'm sure, um, 
to make medical abortion more accessible. And another thing is really important about medical abortion is that um, nurses and midwives and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers should be able to prescribe abortions. This is recommended by WHO and other institutional um, organisations. Um, but now they're prohibited from doing so, both because of state ter- territory laws, which limit them, their provision, um, but also from TGA regulations, which say that only doctors can prescribe medical abortions. Yeah, yeah, plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff to yeah, improve on. Um, <laughs> um, and I mean, even I think keeping in mind that comparing constantly to the US, which is going to be in the news a lot, um, it's important to kind of refocus our attention on exactly what systems would improve uh, abortions or safer access to abortions here in Australia. So um, we could have much equitable, um, much more equitable provision in Australia. And the fact that we don't discriminate against um, marginal and vulnerable women in particular, just as the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade will in um, the States. Definitely. Um, and I'm so sorry, we are like running out of time, um, which <laughs> means we'll have to get you on again, because even just uh, reading about your book, Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice, um, I... Could, yeah, there's just a lot of good points I wanted to speak to you about in it, oh, especially, I'm so I know, especially, book, yeah, especially the discourse, you know, on abortions right now and how, you know, yeah. if it's negatively shaping or detaching women from how they feel about abortions. But anyway, we'll just have to get you on to speak about it again. So sorry, we've run out of time. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Erica, for joining us on the show, talking us through some of uh, the domestic issues, uh, policies and legalities with abortions. Um, it was great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too. Um, that was Dr. Erica Miller speaking about Australia's abortion laws and what can be done to improve them in light of the positioning of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. For further information, be sure to have a read of Erica's article in the conversation titled Abortion is No Longer a Crime in Australia, so why is it still so hard to access? And also check out her book, Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice. Next up, we have a track by the Fugees, Killing Me Softly, with his song, and this one's from their 1996 album, The Score.
Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco 
for their support of the program. Living Koko puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Koko ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingkoko.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You're listening to 3CR. Uh, next up, we have an interview with Emilia Quiano. Um, but before that, we're going to play you a track by MIA uh, Bad Girls. This one's from her 2012 album, Electric Shock. Yeah. 
my chest when I'm banging on the radio. Yeah, back it, back it. Yeah, pull up to the bumper game with the signal. Cover me, cause I'm changing how to handle on it. My life, but I'm broke it. When I get to where I'm going, gonna have you saying it. was a track by MIA Bad Girls. We are now going to be speaking with Emilia Quijano, who um, is on the show to talk about the recent presidential election results in Colombia, um, as well as the political and social context leading up to the election. Emilia is also here to tell us more about President-elect and Vice President-elect Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. Welcome to the show, Emilia. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so thank you so much for, for speaking to us here on 3CR Breakfast. Um, so the second round of the presidential elections in Colombia took place a couple of weeks ago on the 19th of June. Could you please talk us through the results of the election? So basically the results were a direct um, mirror of the discontent that the Colombian people are having with the current situation. Um, they basically voted out Duque, who was merely an extension on, of previous governments. Um, they're all sort of involved with um, the parapolitics, which means that is um, the paramilitaries getting involved in politics, some... Um, um, drug dealing is also involved in this government. And basically in 2021, there was strikes to oppose a um, tax reform. But the standard aspect of these protests 
was the violent state repression and police brutality with which they were met. And I think that people in these elections really went out and voted against that, and they really showed their discontent with that specific moment in 2021. Wow, that's quite... um, That's an amazing sort of example of people power there um, in fighting back against the state and state-sanctioned violence. Um, What do we know about the president-elect Gustavo Petro and his running mate Francia Marquez? Yes, exactly. That's what I wanted to mention. The president-elect, it's not just one person. It's a formula. It's a a, a new idea that he has. And Petro and Marquez come from very different backgrounds. Petro um, basically um, has been in politics since the 90s. Before that, he was a revolutionary. He um, worked, he was a member of the M19, which was a dissident movement involved in some sort of, in guerrilla activity, but also heavily involved in changing the constitution of Colombia. Um, then Francia comes from very humble origins. Francia is basically the face of a forgotten Colombia, the most disenfranchised population that basically has no access to water and electricity that's been completely forgotten by the state. And she became a um, social leader and fought several um, environmental campaigns to save rivers and um, forests in her area. Then... um, by like through her own efforts, graduated as a lawyer and has earned several international recognitions on her efforts to you know protect the environment so it's very it's 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 very inspiring and he's also like the it's called el Pacto histórico which means like the historical team and it's a, a group of people that basically want to change the history of Colombia. Um, wow, that's that's sounding um, that sounds really exciting. And and you were saying just now that Francia Marquez represents and is the face of um, the forgotten Colombia. And even she has said herself that she represents, you know, the nobodies um, of the country. Could you tell us more about these communities and how they've been historically disenfranchised in Colombia? Well, what's the most ironic thing is I don't think it's like isolated communities. I think there's like a very small percentage of Colombians that actually enjoy the world as we know it. Like most of Colombia lives in very isolated regions and due to the nature of the like geographical Colombia, like there's high mountains, it's difficult to get places the um, roads haven't really been developed. The, you know, internet connectivity hasn't really been developed, and that's something very interesting that Petro is like discusses in his um, in, in his proposals. Um, but basically, most of Colombia not only doesn't have access to basic, um, you know, things that we take for granted like running water and electricity, but there's like nobody really cares about them and they also live in profound poverty. Mm-hmm. 
And they are, unfortunately, the majority of Colombians, I think. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to note, actually. So what are some of the platforms then that Petro and Marquez are running on? Are there any policies that um, they will be um, or they're, they're looking to implement as soon as they um, get into power? Yes, well, the most important one, I think, is to um, bring back support for the peace agreement. Um, it, the peace agreement was signed by Santos. And then when Duque was elected, he sort of paid lip service but didn't do much to support the guerrilla people that were, like, putting down their arms and trying to be, like, be absorbed back into society. All the programs that were um, facilitating that transition were defunded. And so what we saw was, a, like, an increased murdering in... Um, and disappearance of these people that were actually trying to do the right thing. And that has, like, two sort of um, main aspects, because you want to bring those people putting down their arms into society to, you know, give them a chance. But also what was happening was that a lot of um, farmers were displaced by this conflict and they had to flee into the cities. And, um, you know, some people saw this an advantage and took their lands. And so this, with, with, his, with Gustavo Petro's policies, I think the most relevant one is that he wants to, you know, reinstate these peace agreements by bringing these people back into society, but also by um, a, a land reform, so like restituting the lands to the farmers that lost it during the conflict. And with that... He is also proposing um, like a sort of revolution in Colombian terms of agricultural production by offering more support to these, you know, farmers that had to flee their lands and 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 bring them back up to date with, you know, you know, techniques and agricultural development in the land that they just been restituted. And and then do you think that they will be met, um, sorry, Petro and Marquez, they'll be met with any um, challenges or obstacles as they try to implement some of these policies? Well, I believe, and I hope I'm wrong, that the main challenge might come from, you know, the the Colombia that has had it all, from that 1%, mm-hmm. because what we saw Gustavo Petro was the mayor of Bogota. I, the, the year eludes me right now. But what happened was that basically all the, you know, the the rich people colluded to make his mandate completely, like just stealing trucks, making it difficult. And so that's the main concern that is at the moment that, you know, he will be sabotaged, his government will be sabotaged. And then behind that comes, you know, Colombia is in a very, very difficult situation right now. There is inflation, there's violence, there's Venezuelan intense migration that, you know, Colombia just does not have the uh, infrastructure to support. There's um, um, narcotrafico, drug dealing. Mm. Um, So there's just a lot of very delicate situations going on in Colombia side by side. And obviously, Gustavo Petro has a huge challenge in front of him. 
Yeah, it sounds like there are going to be there's going it's going to be a lot of work for for the president elect as well as um, his vice president. Um, we sort of talked about this before. You know, you were saying that um, the the results of the election were it was sort of a direct re- or a very clear reflection of the discontent that a lot of people were feeling during Duque's presidency. Um, is there anything that you can comment on in regards to, you know, the the power that people have in Colombia to to really affect change? Um, it sounds like there's the, that Colombia is in quite a precarious situation right now. But um, are there things that you know um, communities are doing to to help mitigate some of these issues? Well, there is a lot of community power. I heard a philosopher once say that Colombia was a very strange case where academia was linked um, not to sort of upper classes but to grassroots movements. And that is something that I have found in Colombia, like when, you know, like people are all linked together and the the knowledge that they gain is not used to be written in books but is used to help their peers mm. and i think there that, that over the last few decades with um Pablo Escobar and all that violence i think that was buried in with fear there's been a lot of experiences the government has violently repressed um any attempt for change but I think from last year, from the strikes in 2021, we saw that the community is waking up again and it's kind of lost the fear because they've kind of lost it all. And so we've seen communities organizing themselves. We have the example of Francia Marquez. She is, she's come from basically a very poor disenfranchised community and she has fought huge corporations and huge mining magnates, and she has won. So I think Colombia has been silenced through fear for many decades, but that the communities are coming back together to, to you know, make their voices be heard. Yeah, for sure. It's like when, you know, a group of people have really nothing else to lose, they can only really go up from there. Um, and band together and, and work together. Um, just quickly, you know, you are talking about Francia Marquez's um, just incredible work that she's done, uh, yes. really, you know, um, getting her law degree and, and fighting all these big mining corporations um, to defend the rivers and um, the region's waters. She's also the first black VP. What does that mean um, to have a visible, you know, Afro-Colombian woman in government? Well, it's huge. Like, I, I can't explain to you socially how meaningful that is because basically Colombia is divided in social castes and they are immovable. And that's why the government has always been the same three families. And to see a completely different face and, and it is not only her, El Pacto Histórico, Petro's Historical Pact, not only has seen Afro-Colombian women elected, but indigenous women, farmers, um, yeah, and indigenous people from various regions of Colombia. So it's, it's very exciting, really. 
Yeah, that sounds, that's really exciting and definitely worth celebrating. Um, my final question for you, Amelia, looking ahead now, what are you personally going to be keeping an eye on with regards to um, the Petro Marquez government? Is there anything that you're really looking forward um, to seeing change in, in Colombia? Well, I think my main, like the main challenge that people have is to hold their government accountable for their promises. And I think that that's a lesson that all humans need to learn. I think that once we support someone, try to avoid seeing all their flaws or maybe the things that they're not following through with. Um, But besides that, and the only thing that I can sort of hope is that they do get a chance to implement all the changes that they've promised. They have been so interesting from like putting a Colombian satellite over Colombia to improving, you know, health, education, land restitution and in addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. Petru is huge on addressing climate change and he has this really interesting proposal which is um leveraging their international debt with their um, environmental resources, which is new and, and, and very interesting. Well, it sounds like after what has been, you know, a really tumultuous time in Colombia, and, and I guess it still is, it is exciting at the same time to see um, fresh faces in government who are really, um, who have a lot of, ideas and policies that can really make life a lot better for everyone, not just that 1%, and also to um, help save the environment. So that's really exciting. Thank you so much, Amelia, for joining us on the show today. We would love to have you back on Tuesday Breakfast to um, give us an update on how things are going in Colombia. But for now, uh, thank you for speaking with us this morning on the election results. Thank you so much for having me. So that was Emilia Quijano just now speaking to us about the presidential elections that uh, took place in Colombia just over uh, a week ago um, and giving us an insight into the new president and vice president-elects, uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. Uh, we'll be back right after this message. CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Three CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR Keep Community Strong. Three CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3CR.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep Community Strong.
Hello everyone, welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am or maybe you're streaming online at 3cr.org.au. Before that break we heard from Amelia um, Kihava who spoke to us about the presidential elections in Colombia um, and don't know about you, Jasmine, but I learned a lot about what's happening over there at the moment and, you know, it's really exciting to see that um, there are some new faces in government and, mm-hmm. yeah, stay tuned, I guess, to see what happens next over there. I um, just wanted to have a quick Radiothon update. Uh, we're coming to the end of June now, uh, but it's still, it's not too late to donate if you haven't already. So you can do that by donating online. You can go to 3cr.org.au. Uh, you can text us a pledge of support to 0488809855 or you could even call the station at 94198377. You could also drop in, drop by in person, which is very exciting. Um, the station is uh, located at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. So you can come by um, any time between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Monday to Friday. Um, just quickly, Jasmine, mm. you are quite new to, to Tuesday Breakfast. I am. <laughs> <laughs> How has it been for you so far uh, volunteering at the station? Yeah, no, it, it's been great. And I think, yeah, it's a really good opportunity to... Yeah, to remind our listeners that, as Fung was saying, it is coming to the end of June. Um, so if you are planning to donate, you can do so before June. Any donation over $2 is tax deductible. Um, yeah, so if you really value alternative news and current affairs um, and the championing of diverse voices, then, yeah, consider donating. Yes, please. Um, and, you know, like we were saying, it is volunteer run. So there are hundreds of, of people who are really passionate about a diverse sort of range of topics who come in um, week by week or maybe they organise their shows from home. They try to give you um, an incredible news and current affairs and, and other information um, uh, as well as great music and, you know, discussions on books and the arts uh, that have, like, a really um, a, a real focus on, on the local community, which I think is incredible. So, yes, as Jasmine said, it is not too late. Um, any donations over $2, to $2 are tax-deductible, tax deductible, that's hard to say, and there are several ways for you to donate. You can do it online, over the phone, or um, coming into the station. And I think we are very close to our target. I think we're nearly at, um, yeah, our target, our our big target is $250,000. So um, if you can help us out by giving as little as or as much as you can, that would be greatly appreciated because it really, it goes, you know, straight to the volunteers and and helps keep the, the station going. Um, so yeah, um, I've just actually had a look at one of the signs in the station. We have over 400 volunteers bringing, um, bringing our listeners amazing radio content every week. So that is a massive amount. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. So wild. And we were just having a chat, um, before actually about how hard it is to, to volunteer now, um, uh, 
at this time when when things are really hairy out there. So, um, yeah, the fact that there are so many people who who make it a priority to come in um, is is incredible. So, yeah, please make sure you donate. Um, it's not too late at all. Um, every cent is um, greatly appreciated. Okay, well, that was a bit of, uh, that was a Radiothon update for you all. We are going to be back to wrap up today's show right after this. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Uh, it's Tuesday breakfast and we are coming up to the end of the show now. Just before we leave you this morning, we did want to give you a brief recap on what we had on today. Um, Jasmine, do you want to talk us through the first uh, interview that we replayed this morning? Yes, I do. Um, So we were lucky enough to um, hear back an interview that occurred a few weeks ago from Tanya Penevik. Um, She was just chatting with us on the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade in the US and here in Australia. Exactly. Um, And uh, after that, we also had another discussion that we replayed. Yeah, and so we also um, had a had an opportunity to hear back a conversation we had with Erica Miller, um, and that was in a more local context, so discussing Australia's abortion policies and the domestic implications of the overturning of Roe v Wade. And just on that topic, actually, if you are interested, uh, there are a bunch of protests um, defending to defend abortion rights um, that are happening across the country. Um, just to give you a quick update, uh, there are some happening 
on Thursday in Newcastle, on Friday in Brisbane and in Adelaide. And if you are in Melbourne, there's a protest happening Saturday the 2nd of July. Um, that's 12 p.m. outside the State Library. Um, and there, the, there are protests going to be happening across other cities as well this Saturday. Um, so, yeah, if you're wanting to get out there and um, band together with community to help protect um, uh, the right to an abortion, then please um, feel free to show up at any one of these events. Uh, after that, at 8 o'clock, we spoke with Emilia Quijano on the presidential elections in Colombia. Um, Gustavo Petro and his running mate, Francia Marquez, have just been um, elected into government. And so Emilia was on the show to talk to us about uh, what's been happening in Colombia in the last few years that has led to these election results um, and what we know about um, the incoming president and vice president. So that's all we have time for this morning. Up next is Accent of Women, and um, make sure you stay tuned to Breakfast every day this week. Remember to keep it locked to 3CR, 855 AM, or listen online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.